Very good evening to you. Um, good to see such a large group here this evening for uh, a what's event that's effectively um, partly a public lecture, partly a book launch uh, for women versus capitalism: why we can't have it all in a free market economy. Uh, by Vicky Price. I'm going to say a few words about Vicky, one or two about the book, and then. Uh, Vicky will speak uh, for half an hour or so, then we'll have a little discussion. There'll be plenty of time for questions and answers. Uh, this is an LSE public event, uh, partly run by the LSE School of Public Policy. There's a hashtag here, hashtag LSE Price. Uh, so uh, not to be forgotten. Immortalized. There you are, immortalized in a hashtag, Vicky. So uh, first a few words about our speaker this evening. Uh, Vicky Price is Chief Economic Advisor for the Centre for Economics and Business Research and an alumna of the LSE. Her new book is Women and Capitalism, Why We Can't Have It All in a Free Market Economy. Now, her recent posts have included those in a number of consulting companies and uh, also she was the Director General for Economics at the uh, Department for Business, Innovation and Skills, Joint Head of the UK Government Economics Service, where she was responsible for evidence-based policy and for encouraging measures that promoted greater productivity in the UK economy. Previously, when I first met her, she was Partner and Chief Economist at KPMG and earlier held Chief Economist positions in banking and the oil sector. She co-founded Good Corporation, a company set up to promote corporate social responsibility. As I said, uh, she's an alumna of the LSE uh, and uh, a member of previously of the Court of Governors, and indeed she and I are regular debaters here at events, most recent, recently on the subject of Brexit. And if I didn't say, I should say, I am Tony Travers. Uh, if I didn't say that earlier, I always forget something when I'm up here. Now, before I turn over uh, the stage to Vicky, I just wanted to read the beginning of Chapter 2 of uh, the book, which will be available outside after for you to buy, should you wish to, and Vicky will then sign it on stage here immediately after that, should you want that too. So just to read the beginning of this chapter. When women first enter the UK labour force, the gender pay gap is virtually non-existent. By their late 20s, the gap has risen to 10% and it rises steadily thereafter. A recent study looking at the pay gap for women aged 22 to 29 found that if the gap persisted on that basis alone, women who carried on working would ultimately earn £223,000 less in their lifetimes than men. For some, she goes on, it's all blindingly obvious. Women have babies and men do not. Our roles are set by God, oblique nature, and our sex. And then, then it goes on to quote a, a, a free market think tank writer who says, and I quote, or she, Vicky quotes him saying, the gender pay gap is a non-issue. Vicky then goes on to say, the data doesn't quite agree with that, i.e. his assertion which I'm sure you will not be surprised to hear. But now, less from me and more from Vicky herself is going to talk about the book, and thereafter we'll have an opportunity to talk with her about it. Ladies and gentlemen, Vicky Price. Thank you.
Thanks very much for this. I, I'm rather aware that people sitting in the front can hardly see me, and some of them I used to work with. So anyway, hello. Uh, this, is the, this is not actually the thing. This is the light. So uh, here we go. <laughs> so I had that trouble, so I did exactly the same. <laughs> but there we go. I was always uh, in a problem with technology all along. So um, anyway, I'm absolutely delighted to be here, and thank you all for, for coming. I have to say... Uh, that when I thought of writing this book, I intended to call it Don't Bake. Uh, I thought that was an interesting title. It would uh, irritate lots of people who watch Bake Off, uh, but you can understand what I mean. But my agent uh, thought, well, maybe not. Maybe we'll sell to a few women, but perhaps not very many. So uh, he thought that the title Women versus Capitalism would be great. And, of course, I had to spend more than 300 pages in this book trying to justify this title. Uh, but it wasn't that difficult at the end of the day because um, so much has been written about the issues affecting women. Uh, and there is no doubt in my mind that, that uh, the way our present sort of short-term focused sort of system, capitalist system, works generally doesn't lead to an optimum allocation of resources. We were all taught, and I remember sitting here uh, as a young student, that you have efficient markets and uh, the price mechanism works in such a way that you achieve Pareto uh, optimal efficiency. Um, well, uh, I don't think the system quite does that. Uh, we know that, well, we see that when uh, the whole issue of environment uh, is raised, the externalities are simply not priced in. Um, and what you need is a bit of nudge from government and a lot of regulation if you are to achieve uh, the right allocation which allows you to have long-term sustainable growth. And I think that's the same, really, with women's labour market participation. Uh, but here I think the, the balance of nudge versus regulation is tilted too much towards nudge. And we don't seem to have quite moved to a situation where you can have the right allocation of resources. And I wanted to focus this presentation on this. I mean, inevitably, I'll talk about the UK quite a bit. Although the book is international, uh, so I've used sources from elsewhere. And some of the slides you're going to see are in a different language uh, than English. So for the French view, for some reason, I've seemed to have found quite a lot there, but there could be loads more, but I decided to just stick to the French ones for this presentation. But mostly it's in English, so don't worry uh, too much. I haven't found any real Greek ones, uh, which is where I come from, although I could actually have done a little bit of that. So for the Greeks among you, I, I ask for forgiveness, even though that's where I come from, as I said. So um, where are we? This is the French one. Uh, you can see from uh, this, of course, that they were particularly concerned about France, and hence why the blue one shows France. But you can see two bars down the UK. What this is trying to do is looking at um, uh, equality. If you identify that in relation to uh, health and provision of education uh, and, of course, money that you make and positions of authority and political representation and so on. And if it's one then it means that we have equality. If it's anything below that, we don't. And the interesting thing about this, with one little exception, is that the majority of those that are doing really, really well uh, are the ones right at the very top, who are still not close to one, but at least they are at 80 or so, 0.8, uh, the, northern, the northern countries, the Nordic countries, like Iceland, Norway, Sweden, and Finland. Rwanda appears on this list. Um, 
some of you who do that type of stuff, looking at what happens in African countries, perhaps can explain it to me, but Rwanda seems to be doing quite well. Ireland, really quite interesting. I mean, France not doing too badly, and then we are two down. But we are still seeing a big gap there uh, of sort of 0.3, which is actually quite significant. It means that we haven't, despite the fact this is 2019, nearing 2020, quite achieved uh, gender uh, equality. Um, across the world. Um, and that's a worry. So why do we need to worry? I mean, obviously, we've had the Me Too movement. We've had um, uh, feminism, of course, sort of reasserting itself in all sorts of ways. Uh, but the way that I approach this book is by arguing that you can have all these things. You can sort out the Me Too issue. You can sort out the power balance that is tilted against uh, women by achieving economic Power. So economic empowerment is really at the heart of uh, changing the way that women are viewed and operate uh, in uh, the world because, of course, economic power also gives you political power, whether we like it or not. We are more important. We have more resources. We can influence. Um, what happens, of course, at present is that the market mechanism, the way it works, doesn't allow us to get to that economic empowerment. Um, women do not work at the skill level. Uh, they have loads of obstacles against them. Uh, there are legal restrictions in working. Uh, even in Europe, it, until 1965, women in Switzerland had to get permission from their husbands to have a bank account uh, or to work. So it may be surprising to the younger generation, but we've made huge uh, progress since. But just remember, it was only a few decades ago when women really had no rights of that sort at all. And if you look across the world, then you'll find that there are so many restrictions in relation to the types of jobs that women are allowed to do. Uh, how far away from home they can travel? Can they work at night? Do they have any property rights? Very often they don't. And there are some controlled experiments that show the differences that can be made if things change, if regulation is adjusted in such a way that it enables women to participate more fully in the labor force. So, for example, you know, one of the things that I quote in the book has been uh, evidence from uh, Ethiopia where some of those restrictions, one bit of it, were, were uh, removed and you found that women's labor force participation increased by some 35%, and the, role, the, the number of senior roles also increased quite significantly. And then you find there were other restrictions, which are social, I suppose, and cultural. Uh, so another very interesting study looked at what happened with marriageable age and growth. So if you uh, uh, focus on, on the industrialized nations as we know them now, and you look at periods between 1500 and 1850, you find that as marriageable age increased in some countries, not all of them, and we're now talking about Europe, those that increased their marriageable age had over a period of time considerably faster growth and developed and left the others behind. And there are all sorts of reasons for why that happens. And first of all, you get bit more education by staying at school. Possibly you get a bit more labor market participation by carrying on working. And then you transmit all that to your children who are better educated, perhaps then work for a bit longer. And over a period, the dynamic impact is really quite significant. So those countries that change that then seriously change the way uh, in which they've developed and grown 
Uh, and you can see how just this change on how you treat women can have a very significant impact uh, on the economy. There are countless examples like that. And the World Bank puts out all these reports still highlighting uh, the legal restrictions that exist in terms of women's participation. So what happens is not only are the signals not right in terms of how much better you can do if you use women and how productivity can increase if you use them at the skill level and how prosperity will increase if they earn more and therefore have better household incomes, how you prevent them perhaps from falling into poverty and the impact that has on their children and their uh, achievements, uh, you end up with a serious market failure. So I looked at the whole thing from that perspective. A series of market failures which end up with a system operating in a suboptimal level and the changes, therefore, that need to be made for that uh, to be uh, corrected so that women do not uh, uh, end up just doing low-paid work. They don't end up falling into poverty. They don't end up with the type of pensions wealth in the UK, which is just a fifth of men's by the time they retire. Women in France, for example, just to bring that example in again, have to work longer and they still end up with a considerably lower pension uh, than the men they, they, they compete with. And that is, of course, partly because they take time off work, and that time off work, to have children in particular, or if they work part-time, absolutely affects their average earnings and absolutely affects the contributions they make themselves to, to pensions. So there are all these barriers which affect women. In addition, uh, there are others that seem to happen uh, in the workplace, uh, there are information asymmetries. In fact, they happen even a bit earlier. So the information asymmetries at school is that nobody tells you uh, what type of job you should have uh, in the future, what is going to earn you the highest uh, uh, amount of money through your lifetime, therefore what you should study. Uh, and, of course, you look around you, there are not enough women in senior positions in various places that you perhaps would consider applying to have a career in and study various subjects. So you opt out, you opt for something different, which leads you to um, choosing a suboptimal uh, course of studies for you. And I have this friend who isn't here, who used to work with, who came from McKinsey to, to the, the DTI and then sort of biz as it was, the Department for Business. Uh, and she was in the Times recently, I don't know whether any of you saw, the, the slides she produced for her daughter. She, she's, her daughter said, I want to be, I shouldn't say that at the LSE, uh, I want to do psychology. Uh, I have my niece here who did psychology at the LSE. Um, nothing wrong with it at all. But, so the mother, of course, was an economist. So she said, okay, psychology, right. Um, so she spent quite some time, and the slide was in the papers, which I'm now you know, framing in my house, which had all the, all the possible uh, jobs you can do, careers you can have, what you can earn through your lifetime. I mean, we already know that the closest correlation with your earnings through life is A-level economic, uh, maths, A-level maths, which you can use for everything. But anyway, she uh, looked at all the, the, the other uh, possibilities apart from psychology and drew that uh, with everything you can possibly think of. It was just extraordinary. Anyway, you will be pleased to know, perhaps not, um, the girl changed her mind and she's doing economics. <laughs> Good, for the economists. Um, so there are these information asymmetries that are there. They also appear at work. So 
Again, I have a number of examples in the book of, of women who found themselves being in a serious minority uh, in their workplace. And of course, uh, you know, the men will go to the loo afterwards and chat uh, about whatever it was. Uh, the women or the woman wouldn't really quite have uh, this possibility. Although now with gender, uh, with gender, whatever it is, uh, neutral uh, loose, that might have been different. Um, so, but then, as they were growing up, you couldn't quite do that. Uh, so they don't get the information of whatever it is that this man perhaps will tell you, will, will have a discuss and therefore will do the following day. You don't go uh, to the pubs afterwards to get that out of the information. You can't play golf all weekend because you have children. Uh, you don't go to lap dancing clubs, all that sort of stuff, which leaves you a little bit exposed in the sense that you don't have that information, which makes them do well and you, you are unaware of this. And then, of course, networking. Again, we're constrained because of children and other interests. Uh, and uh, there are networking inequalities. I, I belong to absolutely any, every, every network I know. Uh, every woman's network, I know, plus lots of others, uh, which I think is incredibly helpful, and women should do a lot more uh, of that. And again, you get a lot more help if you're part of that. You know what jobs there are. You know which firms to avoid. Um, and there is, of course, then, uh, because there are so many men in senior positions and they do most of the hiring, uh, you get this unconscious bias, but there's actually a lot of conscious bias too. You tend to just hire people that are like you. Uh, you take the lazy option. If you are to change the culture of an organization, you're going to have to invest and in going back to how capitalism works. Uh, if you are to keep these women uh, uh, in, in the long term and have the, the type of sort of um, balanced top team that you want, you're going to have to do all sorts of things like be more flexible in your work uh, hours and allow all sorts of, you know, possibly job sharing like we do in the public sector, which is extraordinary. Uh, you may have to promote women while they have children. So one of my daughters, uh, it happened to her exactly like that, but she does work for HMRC. So, uh, so that was rather good. Uh, but it doesn't happen in most uh, private companies because it costs. You can't change the culture overnight. It's an investment. If you take that away from profits, uh, then there's a problem, especially if you have to report every quarter. So there are serious difficulties there with changing the structure and really encouraging uh, women uh, to work. And we don't have sufficient legislation. So every, at every step of the way, women's lot, if you like, and labor force participation and equality, if you want to call it that, has improved because of government legislation. Without that, we would have been way, way behind. So what we still have, because there still isn't enough, we have this pay gap, which is a manifestation of it, job categorization. Uh, in other words, we have lots of women doing particular jobs that are low paid. Uh, and then, of course, you have a lack of seniority. All those are uh, market failures. So internationally, then, you just look at the impact that we would have if we had proper labor force participation by women, women working at the right levels. Uh, what uh, the IMF has calculated is the welfare gain from removing barriers, the percent in terms of, of how welfare would improve. You see the output ga gain, which is the, the gray bar. If you remove those, those uh, barriers, uh, and in fact, you get them even in Europe uh, uh, quite significantly, uh, which is quite interesting. And, uh, and then you also have the barriers themselves, the way you can measure the impact of them, uh, which look, if you look at the right um, axis, this is the percent uh, in, in sort of a tax equivalent. So basically, you are taxing women's labor force um, at that level, which is considerably higher than, than men. So it is like an imposition of costs to industry 
um, because you have all these barriers which do not allow these women to work uh, uh, for, you know, in the economy and at the right level. So huge um, impact. And you can have substantial increases in GDP uh, as a result if you uh, did that differently. And if you look at Europe then, again, um, uh, there was a little bit of an improvement between 2005 and 2010, as you can see, or that seems to be sort of stalling a little bit. So what this does, this is an index which is looking at sort of 100 being the highest and one being uh, the lowest. And what you do is you add, if you're at 100, then you've got equality. Um, and uh, those are the lines that show you uh, the money, whether that's really improved work in terms of accessibility of it, you know, how much time you're actually spending uh, on, on, uh, on work, uh, then uh, knowledge, skills, basically, and then, of course, health, and finally, power. And uh, although power seems to have improved a little bit, which is the final uh, line at the bottom, that is mainly because there are more women now in, in Parliament, uh, when you look at the overall, which is if you count it up, it is one, two, three from the bottom, it's hardly moved. So this is the overall equality index. So we've stalled, basically. Nothing very much has happened. You may say it's because of the um, slowdown in the economy, the crisis, and so on, uh, but it's pretty bad news, uh, nevertheless. We've made some progress on boards. Uh, if you look at places like Norway, uh, where, of course, there are quotas, uh, then you find there's considerable improvement, but there are places like France that have done reasonably well. Uh, you see the UK uh, with great big effort uh, running a little bit behind, but nevertheless there's been quite a, a move in that area. For some reason, boards seem to be considered as a real manifestation of gender equality, which I think is, is pretty poor in my view, um, because it isn't really boards that matter. If you have you know, one woman on your board, so you say that you know, we have uh, enough women now uh, why do we need to do anything more? And that, unfortunately, is the sort of way that people are thinking. Uh, and, of course, a lot of those women on boards are NEDs, non-executive directors, uh, who sit on lots of different boards. And they have absolutely no influence on the culture of, uh, of a company. I mean, imagine they, they, they have great difficulty coping with the finances, uh, given all this very high-profile collapses that we've seen recently where the board was unable to understand what's going on, uh, the idea of changing the culture of a place. And you can see uh, what um, people think who head those boards in terms of having women. This is the Hampton Alexander Review. Its final uh, findings are coming out on the 13th. But the interim review uh, that came out a little while ago uh, quoted some of the responses that they had. They were surprised about them. And the fact that they were uh, very keen to publicize them suggests to me that they were pretty common. So here we are. We have one woman already. Why do we need to bother with another? You know, my other board uh, colleagues don't really, don't really want a woman, so why should I bother uh, having one? The shareholders are only interested in our results, and they don't really care, forgetting completely, of course, that more diversity on boards uh, leads to better results. And then, amazingly, I don't think women fit comfortably into the board. Interesting. Um, and, of course, there aren't that many women with credentials or right experience. There they may be right because, of course, they haven't come up uh, because they haven't been around to be given the chance to do so. And all the good women have already been snubbed up. That's wonderful. Um, and, of course, <laughs> mo 
most women don't want the hassle or pressure of sitting on a board. I mean, uh, surely they have other things to do. Uh, and uh, and uh, after all, the issues are extremely complex. How can they possibly? So, uh, in truth, boards don't matter. So it doesn't matter what they say, because they don't matter. What really matters is being on the executive. So in other words, taking the real decisions that matter for the company themselves and influencing what goes on. So I would like you to just look at the last bar here, that only 9.7% of executive directors, people who therefore sit on the board, are women. And very often, unfortunately, they're either HR, possibly, um, yes, HR, possibly. Um, very rarely do you find chief finance officer being a woman. So my view in this area is that we should have quotas for senior executives. And that will force them to have to change the culture in organizations so that more stay, there is more of a possibility of promoting these women uh, when they uh, are still around at the end when you're making a choice on who... Uh, to employ in those high positions because otherwise they're not there and there's no competition. That's another market failure which is very evident there. The result of it all, of course, is that we have a pay gap which doesn't seem to really want to go away. It's come down quite significantly, but that now it's stabilised. And, and um, I have to explain the figures because they are quite confusing. You hear all sorts of different data. So when you work part-time, a woman gets paid more than a man. Wow. Um, but of course it is because the men do it later, and I have to remind you that uh, they, for most men it is at the end of their life, if you like, of their working life, uh, and they do it just to earn something extra. Unfortunately for the women, they do it very often as a main job, and women, some 42% of women in the UK work part-time, which is extraordinary. The figure for men is 13%. So, so the, the very large number of women work part-time. Let's forget that for a moment, because I want to get back to it in a second. But the main way that it's, it's told to the world, uh, to the nation, is looking at full-time hourly pay of men and comparing it with full-time hourly pay of women. What did I say before? 42% of women work part-time, so it's not a very good comparison. And that is median figure. So, in other words, it's the one in the middle. You, if there are a few very highly paid women, then it completely distorts the figure. If you looked at it average, an average level, so you looked at all the women, all the men, and multiply, even if it's full time, then the gap goes up to 14% and has not moved in ages. Okay? And then, of course, there's overtime that men do, women don't do, so that raises it to 18%. And if you then look at all uh, full-time and part-time, then the gap is 17%. And if you just look at part-time, part-time hourly pay, by comparison to full-time men's hourly pay, the gap is 35%. So that's very significant. And the fact that most, you know, very large number of women do part-time work just shows you that gap and how, how important it is. That's the one we should be focusing on. And yes, just thinking about the previous slide, uh, the, the gap uh, gets uh, worse later, but I'll, I'll come back to that in another slide, uh, as, um, uh, as Tony read out from the book. But what you end up with is that women dominate 
the lowest paid categories of work. And they, they, are, they are not very well represented at the top, but they are most definitely well represented at the bottom. Uh, so if you look then at that gap that I mentioned, I mentioned the 42% of uh, female employees working part-time in, in the UK, uh, you can see how that gap, full-time, part-time and so on, actually gets bigger as you move down the age groups. I mean, the truth is that, uh, whether we like it or not, girls do very well at university, uh, slightly better than the boys. That may be changing, but anyway, they did. Um, and they entered a number of professions in, in a higher numbers. Sometimes they also earn more early on than the men, but that soon uh, disappears. And it disappears, of course, for all sorts of reasons, including, of course, uh, going and having children. Uh, where you end up is that at the top, the gap is enormous. Okay, as you can see, the, if you look at the 10th, the, 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 the bit which says the 10th highest men being paid, 10%, and the 10% highest women being paid, the 10th highest paid men, earn, uh, women rather, earn a fifth than what the 10th highest paid men earn. So the gap is huge because women are just not represented at the top and when they get to the top, they don't get paid as much. So, um, and the worry is, I talked about education, that actually the gap is smaller the less educated you are. The gap gets worse later. And of course, there is a very good reason. I'm sure all of you will have sussed it out immediately, uh, which is that, of course, when you are well-educated, you probably go into a reasonably well-paid job. If you take any time off, you suffer because your earnings uh, in decrease, of course, and your opportunity cost gets worse, of course, over that period. And when you go back, which is the most extraordinary thing, you normally go back, if you've taken any time off, uh, at skill levels below, at least one level, below your skill level that you had, if not two, and you never recover the trajectory you had before, on average. So you're practically, you know, much better if you just want equality to just not go to university at all, uh, but at least you're richer uh, because whatever it is that you've been earning uh, contributes more to your household income, so at least that's something. It happens exactly the same everywhere. This is France adding the international dimension, it's exactly like that too. If you have baccalaureate plus uh, three more years of education, then uh, the gap becomes bigger for exactly the same reason that I mentioned before. And the real worry is that there isn't a single sector in the UK where women get paid more than the men. So what I'm showing here is the pay gap and then the percentage of workers in the sectors who are women. So, um, I mean, there's one interesting one. I mean, retail, which is here somewhere, uh, which you would have thought dominated by women, or education, which you would have thought, again, dominated by women, where you know, there's still a very substantial gap, despite the fact that women are there in such large numbers. And, of course, right at the bottom, you have the financial sector. So, what's happened in the UK is that finally, I talked about legislation before, Finally, there was legislation to uh, have a bit of transparency. I mean, lack of transparency, another market failure, of course. If you don't know what the person earns next door, uh, even if you're doing exactly the same thing as the BBC discovered to their peril, uh, then you probably are not going to be asking anything, and you'd be quite happy. The moment you discover it, my God, you're unhappy, very unhappy. And it's exactly what's been going on at the BBC, as you know, in a very public way. So 
there was this voluntary requirement of uh, big firms to disclose their pay gaps. And while it was voluntary, nothing happened. A few firms decided to publish them, but very many didn't. And then finally, it became obligatory. So in 2018, we got the first uh, view of what was going on. Uh, of all the firms that have, um, um, that have reported, 79% uh, have a, a median hourly pay for men, which is larger than women, in some cases horrendously so. Um, there are some uh, who report that women are doing better than men, and you can see those on the left side of those bars. Those ones on the left is the percentage of firms that actually say that they're paying their, their uh, women better. And if you add the figures that I have here, 1 plus 2, uh, plus 10 is 13. And from then on, from then on, it's either the same or higher. And you can see the percentage, uh, which is considerably higher. So, pretty bad news. A number of them were very, very embarrassed. And of course, they immediately said, oh, no, no, we're going to do something uh, about this. But of course, the real problem is that it's uh, the seniority of people. There aren't enough people at the top. Um, so, even when you look at airlines, for example, I mean, the financial sector and construction were the worst, but also if you look at airlines, so EasyJet, um, the, uh, there are hardly any pilots, for example, at the top, um, who, are, who are women, uh, and Ryanair, I think, had the same. And it was really quite interesting because uh, it hasn't quite permeated through even, even to the young. Uh, I was doing a debate on feminism, uh, dare I say? Okay, Durham, uh, in the union. And... And one of the, the guys stood up after I've said a few things about Ryanair or, or EasyJet. He said, but surely, this was a young, a young student, but surely um, if we are to have more pilots, then EasyJet will have to lower its standards. And, uh, and I seriously thought that the women would get up and hiss, but no, they all nodded. Uh, and, um, and I lost that debate. That was... The one time I lost that debate, I learned my lesson. I don't use that example anymore. It's much easier uh, to avoid it. So, so that's basically what happens. And, and, and then, of course, they did it again. There was hardly any improvement at all. Uh, finance firms, as I said, are the worst. And you can see some of the gaps uh, in individual firms and, and how significant they are. And then, of course, you have to look at bonuses as well. And then, of course, in year one, there was a really clever thing, because I was a partner at KPMG, as you heard. And... And the, the KPMGs and the others of this world um, apparently put their first results out, which didn't look too bad, but didn't include partners because they weren't paid employees. Huh. Uh, and, of course, the gap would have been huge if you, if you put the, the partners there as well. And then the civil service, well, I'm very, very proud of having been in the civil service, and, of course, things are much, much better, and we have sort of more or less targets um, to achieve all sorts of diversity and everything else, um, even there there are differences. And I've put each of the, the grades, uh, and those of you who are civil servants here or have worked with civil servants uh, can probably attest to that. And really right at the top, it's not just the salaries, it's just that right at the top we don't have enough uh, uh, permanent secretaries that are men, but still it is hugely better than anything I've encountered in the private sector. So how do you account for this pay gap? I already mentioned some of the stuff to do with, um, uh, with people at the top and not, uh, not actually uh, having enough women um, in senior positions, but uh, there are all sorts of reasons uh, for it. There, there, there is a bit that is explained, um, and, and, and that is about 35%. Uh, but then 
there are loads of things that are not explained. The things that are explained, of course, include what occupation you're in, uh, you know, what, uh, whether you work full-time or part-time, just the obvious ones. Uh, but the rest is really down to unconscious bias or even conscious bias uh, and laziness or indeed, as I have in the book, our capitalist system that does it. So I'm aware that I need to um, speed up. Um, this is just to take you through quickly what happens if you have children. For those of you who either have them or intend to have them, there's usually no understanding of what the cost of this is. Uh, this is IFS work, which shows that almost like for 12 years after the birth of your child, the gap, the gender wage gap, increases, okay? Gets bigger and bigger and bigger for a while. Uh, so you lose out very significantly in terms of career progression. I, I have to say that... Um, Child number two, in my case, after she had child, her own child number two, rang me up and said, I really, really, really want to, to stay at home with, with, with little whatever. Um, and I'm saying you're going by part-time, maybe do something else. I went ballistic. I said, what? You haven't been reading what I've been writing? So, so, so she went straight back full-time. Uh, and, uh, and so that worked. And one of the few times when I've been successful with my children, I have to say. So, uh, but look what happens. Look, this also affected her at the time. What happens is that if you want to have more flexibility, you tend not to travel very much. You tend to try and find jobs around your area so you can go and collect little Harry or whatever his name is uh, from, from school in the afternoon or from nursery. So it, it, the wage gap and the distance you travel to work are very closely correlated because, of course, the market you go to, uh, if you're trying not to go too far, it's going to be very limited in terms of what there is and what type of, you know, how much money you can make and all that sort of stuff, which of course sort of uh, is, is, is seriously uh, negative for, for women. And of course, it's not very surprising that in most cases, women with children uh, work less than women uh, without, uh, which is of course, again, a loss, uh, particularly if you've educated all these people and then they don't actually do an awful lot. Of course, childcare uh, is a serious issue. Again, it differs in different countries hugely uh, in terms of the subsidies that are given for, for children. We are here in the UK taking it a lot more seriously and we're spending a lot more. And if you've listened to all the, the, the manifestos, uh, there is now a lot of emphasis on reducing the childcare costs for people, but they can be absolutely crippling uh, in places like the UK, whereas in places like Norway, uh, much, much less so, and Sweden, as you can see here. Uh, and childcare costs matter for for developed nations very, very significantly. This is a, a chart that shows that uh, women in the US have reduced the labor force participation because of um, childcare costs that for some reason over a decade, despite the fact that average earnings or wages really didn't increase at all in real terms in, uh, in the US, uh, childcare costs for some reason went up by something like 20%. And that really hit them and they stopped working basically. Uh, having said that about the US, women, though, work more than men because they do an awful lot of unpaid work, which is not valued, uh, by, you know, in GDP figures, uh, by the people that they do the work for. Um, and you can see that that happens all across the world. So including the developed countries where, again, uh, the, the women one is the dark blue the men one is the lighter one, 
uh, sorry, no, it's the it's uh, women and men next to each other. The, the blue the blue is the paid, and the other the got the other way around. The blue is the unpaid, and the paid work is the uh, the grey one. Uh, so you can see the differences that exist. But basically, what it ends up being the case is that women do most of the unpaid work all across the globe, and that is not valued by society. It's not doesn't allow them an income. And I've almost come to the conclusion that we do need to pay something for all that work that's being done. So there could be perhaps a national income that's paid. I know it's been suggested uh, at a certain level, but even so, it still wouldn't take into account the opportunity cost of women not being at work. So just as an indication of what it is that women do, uh, but of course men do too, you can see the difference that exists between such very, very simple stuff. Uh, I know it is very simple, but I rather like it because uh, it's, uh, you know, the cooking is the funny one. You know, in my household, it's the man who does the cooking. But uh, in many others, since I, I was going to write, say, call this don't bake. But uh, <laughs> otherwise, um, it is a woman who does uh, a lot of this. So then look what the Telegraph, right-wing newspaper, did in 2014, which I found quite interesting. <laughs> it just looked at all the things that a woman does. And then, uh, for example, you, know, you do gardening, how much do you spend on, on gardening, and what, what do they cost per hour, and they put it all together, and, and, and then it came to this. And I was, I was at a school talking about this a few days ago, and one woman, who I think is going to be our Chancellor of the Exchequer one day, said, so does that mean that, the only, that a woman will not have any incentive or a household for her to go to work unless she earns 1000 Oh, sorry, 159 pounds, 138 pounds a year. So in other words, does she need to have this as the minimum before she, she gets a job? And I thought, oh, God, I hadn't actually thought about that. Uh, and it was not a bad, a bad idea. Uh, but of course, <laughs> but of course uh, all these things that people do, they do them after work, unfortunately. So women still do the bulk of the work uh, that needs to be done anyway without necessarily getting paid. But I need to think about that one a little bit more. And so I can go and complain to the Telegraph for giving me that figure, which has made life rather more difficult than I expected. So um, in conclusion, I mean, obviously, there is a lot more very rich in the book. So just in case you, you think that that's it. Uh, with loads and loads of examples, a lot of international stuff, and there is so much written about this which I had not anticipated. At some point I said to say, right, okay, I'm not going to Google anything again, uh, because then you don't finish at all. So, uh, but there is no doubt in my mind that the way the system works, it is inherently short-termist, uh, and it prevents all these issues that we've just been talking about to be properly priced in, the loss in productivity, growth, prosperity that you get otherwise. And I still think, after looking at everything, that economic empowerment is absolutely the key. And in order to get that, we need to remove constraints uh, that exist at present, uh, stop women just ghettoized in particular areas, value the work they do a bit better, such as nursing and everything else, which society, I think, values quite highly, but we have a monopsonistic culture where perhaps the National Health Service you know, is, is responsible for setting salaries for these people, and we end up with them being paid ridiculously low uh, sums of money. Um, the, the seniority of women in many professions absolutely must, and it has to be dealt with, uh, I think, uh, by, by thinking about quotas for those areas. Uh, and that requires, of course, uh, would require, if they're probably implemented, uh, thinking again about this long-hour culture, which doesn't get us anywhere. I mean, after all, as those of you uh, who do economics know, 
John Maynard Keynes had said that by now we would only be working 15 hours a week. 15. Uh, which would be nice. Uh, but we're not, unfortunately. And then really seriously think about subsidizing childcare, which is such an important issue, but also allow a lot more flexibility for people to do other things that they're interested in or uh, work more sensibly because more flexibility gives you more productivity anyway. Then, of course, paternity leave, which is a must in my view, non-transferable, paid at the same rate as women, so that if you go to an interview and someone asks you how you can look after children, they still do so. A third of the firms do that. In fact, half of them think it's perfectly legitimate to do it, even though it is illegal. Uh, you ask the man as well. It's never the case that the man is asked, at least very, very rarely. But if you know that the man is going to take time off, then ah, at least you have a level playing field. Maybe you won't hire anyone anymore. But at least uh, there'll be a level playing field there. Uh, so, and I do really believe that if we handle the issues for 51, 52% of the population by ad adapting the system to deal with flexibility and their needs, then that will also solve because not only the needs of the men, but also the needs of the other groups uh, that we need to encourage uh, as well. And I do really think that although there is naming and shaming going on right now, it only has a very limited impact and we need much more government regulation to get us moving in this area. Thank you. Okay, just a couple of questions for me to... Um Firstly, thank you very much, I should say. It's great. Thank you. Um, not to argue with the entire premise of the book, but, I mean, is... Um, you worry me now. I'm sorry. I mean, presumably capitalism, raw in tooth and claw, the free market working... Um, abs can you hear us? Yes, you can hear us. Um, free market working you know, absolutely perfectly wouldn't discriminate... That is, that it's, it's, and it's the people who operate it, no? Or would, so it would. Is it the, it's the people who operate it? The people who are in power have built up capitalism, and it is they who, in a sense, inhibit the proper operation of a free market, which, if it were pure and free, wouldn't have this kind of discrimination in it. So it's the people who are the failure, isn't it, really? Well, um... There are, system, the there are all sorts of cultural issues and, and bias and, and laziness, which mm. makes people just hire after their own image. But, of course, if you have a woman, she, stand, she tends actually to hire more women, which is quite interesting. Um, so there is an inbuilt system through the decades, centuries, and so on, which in many ways is discriminating against women from mm. cultural and sort of uh, maybe sometimes not very conscious perspective. Um, but... The problem with the system that we have is that it cannot um, uh, price in, if you like, the benefit of women working at the skill levels or having greater labor, um, uh, force, labor market participation by, by women. It is a little bit, as I said at the beginning, uh, like what we see in the environmental field or anything else where there are externalities. So there are externalities to the system working as it is, but they're not priced in. Mm. Uh, the externalities can be very significant. So, as I've shown you, if it was done properly, and if, those, if there was sufficient understanding and knowledge that having women working at a particular level, or more of them in the labor force, which is the way that you increase uh, prosperity anyway, and, and, and giving the right signals so that they do it, 
uh, would increase GDP in, sure. in those countries very, very significantly, would uh, eradicate poverty in some of them, in fact. So, uh, so it is indeed uh, that we focus too much on sort of short-term profit, and the system, including regulation, doesn't quite cover the, the costs of not using them, plus the, the positives of thinking long-term and and changing the way in which women are, are deployed, or even education. I mean, imagine, we all know that skills are the most important thing in productivity. Um, we all know that not allowing women access to education as freely as, as men in so many parts of the world will impact on growth. Well, that goes back to partly what you asked. Mm. It's not the people who run it it's the, as of the government, it's the culture that prevents them, and it's the lack of understanding as the system works that by doing that, you're going to uh, have a serious impact in the long-term uh, running of your economy. So what the, market, uh, the capitalist system does is too much focus on the short term and therefore does not encourage the investment that's required in the long term. And that's the problem. Okay, so there's a systemic issue. Um, second is you touched at the end on the question of shame, naming and shaming. Now, there are a number of issues, high in public policy debate today, where social movements can deliver change quite fast. Some of the companies you've listed here, well-known companies, everybody here will be using them day and night, you know, banks and others we all use day and night. And yet, despite the rationality of the case you make and the clear and obvious unfairness, the rights issues, buried, there isn't enough market pressure on those companies to change their way in the way there would be in other spheres of where there was inequality and unfairness. Why do you think that? Well, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. That's, again, the capitalist system. So shareholders want returns. So they push them to have uh, profits. I mean, we have a quarterly reporting cycle right now, which actually a number of the parties are not thinking of abandoning, possibly. Uh, but it does force you to just look at profits. In, but, yes? So I don't want to interrupt you, but, I mean, surely, though, if they, if they followed the logic of your argument, which I think most people in the room would, they'd be more profitable. They're the, foregoing profit by good. not having very an equal good. workforce. In the long term. Even in the short term, surely. Well, Why not in the short term? Yeah, well, They because, have better people. All right, okay. They have better people in the short term, so you think no, they're just, suddenly going to change. All right. Oh. Uh, so I will read you something, okay? This is my fault. I've volunteered for this. We had rehearsed that before. So... Um, I mentioned the, the review that was done. Oh, did I not mention it? Perhaps I didn't. Alison Rose, who is, the, uh, is now the head of Royal Bank of Scotland, but she was the head of commercial banking. And Royal Bank of Scotland, I know reasonably well because that's where I started my career. Um, she did a review of financing for um, women entrepreneurs, which is incredibly low because they just can't get it. So that's another serious market failure, even though a lot of the propositions are pretty good. Um, they just don't get access to it as easily as, as men. And she quoted the real problems that are there, um, uh, even though it make, they, they are more profitable at the end. So people don't quite see it, but it does take, take a little bit of time. Uh, but in order to change, you need to have the people around you, or you need to be able, let's say you want to have loads more senior women to make the decisions, uh, but where are they? They, they simply haven't materialised through the supply chain, if you want to call it that. Okay, so there she is, Alison Rose, uh, just made the 1st of November head of the Royal Bank of Scotland, which is, hooray, this is absolutely brilliant. So she said, 
Um, at the heart of how I will run the bank is my conviction that if our customers do well, if our economy does well, and if our communities do well, then we all succeed together. So my message to staff is to build a bank that is more open, more accessible, and more inclusive. And then she announced her new executive team. Right. Her executive committee will have Paul Thwaite as CEO for commercial banking and Peter Flavel as the CEO of private banking. Ollie Holborn, I thought maybe that's a woman, but no, adds purpose, sustainability, and ventures to his responsibilities as director of strategy. Rob Wittick is appointed director of the office of the chief executive. I rest my case. Right. <laughs> One final one from me. Is there any evidence that you know, the new world of startups, which should be full of liberal, free thinking, flexible people, is that going to be any better? It, it may end up being so, but for the moment, um, it's the women who, who are involved in startups and fintech and so on uh, are about half uh, as a percentage of the overall. Uh, men that, um, that's, that are in the same business, if you like. So they're way behind still in terms of attracting funds. So there's a and, really and the likelihood of, of a woman in a company reaching, I'm trying to remember the exact thing, one million after a number of years, I think it's something like 10% of the men. Right, okay. okay so... Okay, are we okay then? We're okay then. Very good. Right. Now, audience, the floor is yours. Who would like to... Um... Oh, yes. I'm so sorry. And if, you, if, I, if I can't say, just wave. Sorry. I'm, my, please. And if you'd like to say who you are, say who you are, but don't feel you've got to. Sure. Um, Paolo Bergamaschi. I'm on the board of many of those banks you've been hinting to... Um, and I, I've been working in the city for 25 years, uh, thank God, in senior positions. Uh, and I have to say, uh, thank you very much. This, you must have researched this very, very thoroughly, and it's incredibly, um, you know, informative. But I still struggle to understand the title. I think Don't Bake would have been better. <laughs> because I still struggle to figure out what has really capitalism to do with this? I understand, and I agree with you, almost 99% of what you said. I still struggle to make that leap because I see a lot of sociological issues, a lot of psychological issues. The unconscious bias is huge out there. And I still don't see this fact that capitalism is the problem. Have you researched, or is it in the book that, by the way, I bought... Um, anything around an analysis of uh, a different regime, like a communist one, apart from the fact that everybody earns the same. I don't see many female faces when I look uh, at who holds the power in those kind of countries. Can you, you, know, can you help me out on that one? Yeah, that's, uh, you, uh, that's very interesting. Yes, uh, actually, the title in the end came from that because I wrote an article comparing... Uh, the former Soviet Union with what was going on at that time uh, in Western Europe. And uh, they had much more equality in opportunity, much more equality in education. And of course, uh, the things that we worried about, such as childcare, uh, it was more or less 
taken care of in, in some of those places. Uh, and women were expected to work just as hard as the men. Of course, they didn't. Uh, they went through phases of being against families, and therefore, you go out and work, and someone's going to look after the children because otherwise, it's too much of an individual sort of unit which has thought of its own, very dangerous, to others where, you know, suddenly they thought perhaps family is a good idea. But overall, um, much more equality uh, across, um, and even in some of the senior levels, because I, I started doing privatization work in Eastern Europe when the wall came down, and, and you were meeting very senior women in a number of the countries, not all of them, uh, but in a number of the countries uh, that, uh, that I was visiting. And, and there has been other research which shows that in terms of ambition and, and the way that women expected to be treated in places like, if you compare Hong Kong uh, with the women who grew up in communist China originally and now they all work together, despite the recent troubles, uh, you find there's quite a difference in their attitude in terms of what they expect from life and how do they expect to be treated. So, so yes, I have quite a lot in the book uh, about that. Uh, and, and in my view, even the, 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 the issue of the conscious and unconscious bias, of course, it develops over a period of time. Um, and if you have a system which is one that's, that's been there for, for, for a while and where uh, you don't really need to, to think about necessarily the long term, you're not going to necessarily want to change. And, uh, and the interesting thing is it is only changing because government is putting pressure on firms to not just look at profit, which is the way that the capitalist system works, but to look at longer term, wider issues, corporate social responsibility, you know, sustainability, and all that sort of stuff. Of course, because it's not enforced particularly strongly, we still don't get there. But it is the only way that it will be achieved, and it will change how the system operates at present. Right. Um, question there right in the middle and then one behind you, conveniently together. So uh, in the middle there, can you pass the – can you wave your hand again so that the microphone can come across to you and then to your uh, neighbour just behind? That's it. Um, thank you for this really interesting talk. Uh, my question is also about a post-communist uh, country, namely Romania, where there's the lowest gender pay gap in Europe at the moment, or the EU rather, uh, which is 3.5%. So my question is, um, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on like what explains this, because as far as I know, the government isn't putting uh, pressure on firms at all um, to change. And also, um, as far as I know, and I know it quite well, um, culturally, it is quite um, sexist still, I would say, compared to other countries. Um, so, yeah. Well, okay, you can just pass the, ask the question oh. and you can pass the microphone back. Hi, sorry. Thank you for your lecture. That was oh, all right. Really interesting. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go so on. it's my fault. Go on. Go for it. Go, go. It, it's sort of linked to her question, so maybe you can answer okay. both uh, at once. Um, I was wondering, so you speak a lot about uh, quotas in terms of regulation, but I was wondering if you had other recommendations and solutions now that you've set out the problems and what the government should set out to do and maybe there's some solutions in Romania. Great. Okay, well, the second one is easier. <laughs> I'll get back to you about Romania. You probably know more about Romania than I do. Um, so uh, on... On that, yes, it's, it's not. Quotas are going to change the way, with a bit of luck, the way in which uh, companies operate. And I have to explain just a second how that would be. If, if there are quotas on, on uh, senior management uh, or, or executive positions, uh, which 
uh, apply over a period of time. So you expect them to increase the percentage. If you start from zero, obviously you don't expect them to be 50% in two years' time. And hence, the, going back to Tony's question about the, the, you know, why can't they do it now? Because it makes sense. Because you, know, you haven't got the people to be able to do it, so you just go for different options. Um, so you, you have the, that to be achieved over a period of time. Uh, and in order for that to be achieved, um, you can't just go and find people from elsewhere because there's a limited pool. I mean, well, and maybe post-Brexit will be even more difficult. Uh, so, so what you need to do is just keep the pipeline. So you change the way in which the firm is run or the organization is run or the public so sector organization is run to ensure that, they, that women stay. So you increase flexibility. Um, and also you deal with childcare and training and all that sort of stuff. The working hours, very, very important to, to have an impact there. So you can do it that way. But I think additionally what the government needs to do, um, apart from providing uh, quite a lot of uh, you know, much cheaper childcare, is to make it legal, uh, uh, legally enforceable that flexible working uh, can be uh, offered to people if they want it. Uh, which I think will make a significant difference. The other one is on pay reviews for the moment. There's absolutely no penalty if you don't achieve uh, what you are supposed to be uh, achieving on gender balance. You may say all sorts of things, but you're not doing it. And, and if you're not improving over a period of time, then you, you can have that, that some penalties uh, imposed. So that's, that's the second thing. Uh, and the quotas themselves can then disappear if the culture changes and all these things, uh, these things happen. So, so you can have all sorts of extra um, requirements of, of firms, both reporting and the way they deal with their pay, um, that can change that type of behavior. But it does take time and, and takes quite a lot of time. Now, R Romania, well, I mean, it's interesting when you say uh, uh, the, the fact that it was imposed on, on uh, that was how the communist uh, regime worked before and women were treated the same. Of course, sort of disappears afterwards uh, in most countries that we've looked at um, when the capitalist system steps in. Um, uh, the reason, of course, for the pay gap could be, uh, and it is in a number of those countries, just a legacy issue. It takes a bit of time for that to happen uh, in terms of the gap sort of becoming bigger. Uh, and in some places like Greece, uh, which is pretty sexist, actually, uh, I would guess, uh, although getting better, um, uh, there is also a very small pay gap, uh, as there is in places like Italy. Because a number of the countries that were hit by the financial crisis, most are the ones that actually now uh, have the smallest pay gap. Um, as I said, the pay gap is a manifestation of things. It isn't the only thing that's there. Labor market, forced participation is seriously uh, important as well, and it's important with the right skills. Okay. Down at the front here. If then you, oh, yes, I'm sorry. I'm not ignoring the... Uh, I am ignoring you. Two at the back there, so we'll take... Sorry. Uh, down the front, then two at the back at the top. Yes, please. Um, hi, I'm Nina Scarra. I'm a colleague of Vicky's at CBR. Um, do you worry that if we intensely across industries impose quotas, that it's going to make some of these 
kind of attitude problems towards women, especially senior women, more problematic in the sense of, well, I don't think she deserved that job, but you know, she was the only female applicant and we needed to meet a quota for the year. Because I already notice even now without formal quotas, especially in very, very male dominated fields, especially in finance, when you, you know, when you come across a woman that's maybe not great at her job, it always gets down to, well, you know, she was a woman, so she probably needed to be promoted. Whereas, you know, when you meet an incompetent man, you know, nobody really asks if that as that's because of, because of his gender. So do you worry that some of these attitude problems that would be worsened with quotas? Uh, it's, it's a legitimate worry, but of course, uh, somebody did make a comment, and I can't remember who it was, but I have it in the book. Uh, which is that we'll know we'll have, we have achieved gender equality when a mediocre woman runs a big company. So, <laughs> so which, uh, but you have a point, and quite a lot of women say that um, we don't want to be seen to be here because there's been positive discrimination. Uh, I want to be there on my own merits. But of course, the women who've made it so far have worked twice as hard or whatever it is to get there in a men's world, which is always something we need to bear in mind. But the way that I envisaged the quotas was completely differently to that. It's not positive discrimination of the sort, perhaps, that they, they had in the States. Uh, but it is one that says, at a certain period in the future, you need to be moving towards and you need to achieve those quotas, which will then take away once the culture changes. What you need to do is just change the culture and keep, you try and keep the women in. You don't promote them over the men, you just make sure they don't disappear. And given that uh, they're just as good, if not better, when they join the labor force, so when they join the company, uh, there is no reason why if you keep them and they're able to move up, when you are deciding who to have, you have a bigger choice, you have more competition uh, there. As I said in my, in my little talk, this is, uh, you know, there's a failure, a market failure if you don't have, if you discourage competition because you've left all these people out of the game. So you, you can choose uh, you will choose fairly, probably, uh, and you'll end up with a balanced, more or less balanced team. Even, you know, in some cases, you may only want 30, 30% because, let's say, underwriters, they don't actually have very many women there, or at least it gets getting better. But um, So it, you change the culture so the women are there. So you choose, it's quite likely that you will be choosing a woman because she's just as good as a man, if not better. Uh, so you have a wider choice. So you'll end up with that. So, you, so it's not positive discrimination of that, of that sort. So, so my, theory, my uh, system is completely different to just saying we, could, we need a woman, therefore we're going to put this woman there, irrespective of whether she's any good. Uh, but what there is, of course, is that uh, I have something somebody suggested it, actually, there may be in this audience, uh, which is called the glass cliff. Do you, do you know if you're aware of this? I've got it in the book. Uh, which I didn't know until I've, I started looking at it. Uh, and, and this is that there are some jobs, and there's a glass ceiling, of course you can't get any f further up, but uh, a woman is allowed to do a job when all the men sort of decide not to do it because they know they're going, this is a very dangerous one and the woman will probably fail. Uh, and then they do fail, uh, quite likely they fail. Um, and then you can say, oh, well, look, we put a woman there. Uh, look how she failed, uh, let's not do that again. Uh, and I, I have to say that in the book, I have suggested that Theresa May was one of those uh, women who was on this glass cliff and, um, and came down. Do you remember how all the men sort of disappeared from the scene uh, at a time when she was made prime minister? So, so there are all these things that, that one is taking. It's a very complicated issue, being a woman and being promoted or be given uh, positions of authority because uh, all sorts of things can be 
thrown at you, which quite often are not really right, such as she's only there because she's a woman. Thank you, Vicky. Okay. Now, so equality in terms of the balcony. So I have questions from the balcony, yes. Hi. Um, my name is Leonor Stangelin, and uh, I study psychology at LSE, and I'm very <laughs> happy with that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There is uh, one word which came about quite a lot of times in your presentation to describe women's behavior and its laziness. <laughs> and at the same time, you rightly point out that women work longer hours. Um, and so I was curious about how you reconcile like this image carrying about a shy, lazy woman and the fact that they actually work more. Can I answer this before we get the other one? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't think I said that. So, so what I said is that uh, the, the men, quite often at the top, uh, take the lazy option of just hiring somebody who, who's very much like them rather than doing something different. So I don't know where you got this idea that women are lazy. So uh, in fact, if anything, they're, you know, they're just as productive, just as ambitious, just as competitive, but all the... Mm -hmm. Longer hours, I think. And they were, yes, and they work longer hours. So, so, so quite the opposite. So, so sorry if, if, uh, if I confused you on that. And there was another question nearby at the back there. Yeah. And we'll come over here next. Yeah, hi. Um, uh, my name is Eleanor. And I was wondering, um, does your book, you have a lot of data and evidence, and I wondered whether your book perhaps also considers um, intersectional issues. So what about black and minority ethnic women, trans women, disabled women, and so on? And if I may also sneak in a second question, we have an election coming up, and I wondered if you've seen any particularly progressive policies um, in the run-up to the election. An optimistic person in the audience there. Well, on the good, <laughs> good question. Good question. Get him in early. Well, on the second one, of course, if we just look at childcare, for example, uh, we have had uh, the Lib Dem saying that from nine months onwards uh, there should be free childcare. And others are uh, thinking of all sorts of things that they can <clears throat> throw in the mix. So there is a little bit of that uh, going on, but nothing very much on any of the other areas that I, I've uh, spoken about. Uh, but I, I would imagine that they would need to, once in office, uh, do something more in, in, in this area without any doubt. So, um, and on the first one, uh, which is um, a lot of data, but, 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 oh, inter, yes, intersectional stuff. Um, uh, there is a little bit, but not enough. Um, it, when I was writing the book, I got quite a lot of, of uh, notes from my uh, editors saying, do you want to look at that as well? And so what I did do, rather than do a deep exercise, I've done lots of debates on it though, um, is, is look at how it works when you have proper, almost quotas in this area. Um, in the public sector, we did. So we'd go through uh, ethnic, racial, how we're doing, women, and et cetera, et cetera. So we'd check that. And, and we compare ourselves against the other department. And, and uh, for all those targets, which were actually very serious targets, uh, including disability, I mean, I was really astounded by, by how open to disabled people the public sector was. Um, uh, we would have um, also the, 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 permanent the, permanent the permanent secretary's bonus would depend on 
getting this diversity thing working. So diversity was very, very much part of, of what we looked at. And, uh, of course, we're not the profit-making company, uh, which actually proves the point. If you see what I mean. Okay. And there was a question here. <laughs> Somebody went, woo. Okay. And then we'll come over here, and then we'll come back to this level. Yep. Person there. Thank you for an illuminating talk. Uh, I wanted to ask about your point concerning information asymmetries, uh, specifically relating to the choice of profession. And I'd like to draw your attention to a specific study published last year in the University of Missouri. And this study, called the Gender Equality Paradox in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics Education, surveyed adolescent educational achievement of half a million international students concluding that girls uh, out, uh, or perform equally well or better than boys in science in every two out of three countries. So that's nice. Um, more surprisingly, though, the authors showed that the pattern of female underrepresentation in STEM as a profession is global, but inversely correlated with the level of equality in a country. Thus, in countries such as Finland, Sweden, and Norway, women are more severely underrepresented compared to countries that score less based on equality measures. Could it be that when women are free to make their own choices and when their quality of life is high enough, they choose to not pursue careers in these highly paid professions? If this is the case, what should we do about this? Clearly, these women aren't stupid. Uh, they're highly educated and, cap and capable of making their own choices. Assuming that these results hold and that there's a causal relation, what, what do you propose that we should do about this? Should we force these women to pursue fields that they aren't really interested in? Thanks. Okay, long question. Right, better do that one now. I've no idea. Uh, it's probably the easiest thing to say. Uh, if, uh, today, when I was um, panicking, of course, about the questions I was going to get, um, I actually found an article on science take-up by women. Uh, and a number of sort of top scientists or heads of uh, universities or, or science departments were suggesting quotas there too, practically forcing. In other words, sort of opening up and saying, yes, we have to have positive discrimination there, more or less. Um, but the interesting thing is that uh, I don't know what that study says, but certainly in the UK, um, women are taking up increasingly maths and, and a number of the uh, STEM subjects. So this information asymmetry perhaps is diminishing up to a point. Uh, but where I'm really, really sad it's not happening is in economics. Uh, despite the fact I mentioned before that financially too, that seems to be a good um, one to do. Um, the perception of what you do with economics still seems to be, if you ask women, uh, men, white men in suits and loads of money around. Uh, so the city, rather than all the other stuff that we economists do. Um, but it's interesting what you said about the Nordic countries, and it, it is actually quite uh, extraordinary, because I looked at the equality issue there as well, and I looked at it in relation to board positions, for example. So uh, we have quotas for, for boards, and uh, women do reasonably well there. Um, they do quite well in the public sector. You look at private sector, uh, and you know I spoke about the representation here of just under 10%. It's 7% in some of the Nordic countries. So uh, there is something going on, which I don't understand. It's a little bit like Romania, if you like. Uh, so the, the signals aren't 
aren't right. And perhaps if you are making a choice, uh, at the end of the day, you can perhaps avoid particular subjects if that's what you want to do. Um, but the market signals in the private sector simply don't work. Uh, and that's another proof that uh, something needs to give. And I think what needs to give is whether it's quotas or, or something else. But the private sector in Norway, in Sweden, in uh, Denmark, uh, is just still uh, not showing the types of performance that you would like it to do. Uh, and this is, again, because uh, the quotas that have been imposed are the wrong type of focusing on boards rather than anything else. So. Uh, I think there's a long way to go still. And that is why the World Economic Forum has calculated that it will take 200 years to achieve pay equality um, in, uh, in the Western world. You, you mentioned economics. You're an economist. It's a personal political issue. I mean, you'll have observed this through your working life close to. I mean, what would you say to a young person, a young woman going into or thinking of a career that would convince, that would, I mean, what needs to change to make the job of an economist more appealing? Is it something innate inside all the people currently making decisions? Or is it, is there, is there any more to it than that? Is there an, a, a, okay, there are, there are a few things there. An absolutely definitively okay. good position to make that judgment. Okay, well, I mean, first of all, um, economics is often not done at all in state schools. Right. No, no economics A-level or O-level. So basically you don't quite know it. Second, the perception that I mentioned before in terms of what it means, particularly for women. And I talked to loads of schools, both private and state schools, on, on economics. Uh, and the third thing is that one needs to explain a lot, lot more, this information asymmetry that we talked about before, uh, what economics can do. So the way in which you can uh, you know, shape public policy, <coughs> uh, the way in which you can combine it with psychology, the, the, the lady who asked that uh, question who's doing psychology here, with, in behavioral economics, uh, the way that you can use your evidence, like we talked about before, uh, and your calculations of costs and benefits to give the right the right advice to, to government, the way you can shape policy, the way you can see uh, the long-term benefits uh, and externalities of, of, of bits of the action, the way you can calculate all the unintended consequences of silly policies that are out there, like encouraging people to drive diesel cars and you, you know, uh, because you had one target and then you killed everything else, basically. Uh, so that it is much, much wider than just working in the city and doing forecasts of uh, uh, share prices for the following morning. Okay. Right, uh, we've got about uh, seven or eight more minutes, so I'll take one there, yes, waiting a bit, and here, yeah. Michael Little Child, Good Corporation, a company that was significant involvement of a woman in being set up, if you remember rightly, Vicky. Um, so uh, I wondered whether there are any countries that you've come, that where the things that you're suggesting should be done by government uh, that are made a good start on this, of doing on a consolidated basis quite a lot, and whether we can link that in some way to economic performance, because you had some bits and pieces, like Germany has low child, child care costs, and they're pretty well off. Norway was very good at something, I can't remember what now, and they're pretty well off. But are there any kind of model countries that look as though they've gone quite a long way, and you can show benefits to that? Okay. Great, we'll take three, actually. I will come back to you up there. Yes, okay. Um, where did I promise you there? Yes, sorry. Uh, have you got a, can we get a microphone into the middle there? Just 
Check the glasses there. Yep, that's it. And then we'll come back to up in the balcony if you can. Hi, so Nick Hagenikos, I think we know now why I think you should definitely be appointed by the next government as the next uh, gender equality tsarina. That's what I thought. uh, With Greta Thunberg in mind, I just wondered if, Vicky, you think that women are the green agenda and might women find some sort of new voice as capitalism adjusts to the new realities posed by climate change? Okay. And then, yep. Uh, thank you. Uh, how, how will getting Brexit done advance the cause of women? Okay, why do you do those three? Uh, <laughs> perhaps you lose the last one, maybe the last one in every sense. But oh, no, no, no. Can I do the first one, the right, last do, one first? I'll do the last one first. Not at all is the answer. Uh, and what we've actually found is that if you're growing slowly, women suffer more. Uh, and, uh, and there's a lot of work done on, on the impact of um, the recession or, or not growing very fast uh, by the IMF, the World Bank, and others. So, so there's a lot of evidence there. Uh, the question about the green agenda, that's an interesting one because uh, there is evidence that women are more, are keener uh, on um, uh, environmental issues than, than the men, possibly. Uh, but it's interesting, and uh, the lady who asked the thing and, and questioned whether the system is really in any way uh, rotten. Um, uh, if, if you think about sort of gender equality and what you can do, particularly in the city, um, uh, just one very, very quick example. Uh, Tsipras, our Prime Minister of Greece, as was, sorry, Greece is still there. He's not Prime Minister anymore, <laughs> is what I meant. Um, uh, came to give a talk uh, to encourage investors to come in, and it was at the Guild Hall, and I was invited along with lots of other people who are here. Uh, and, um, uh, and after the talk, we all went into an anteroom uh, where we were going to ask more questions, invited by the City of London and the, the Greek Embassy, some of whom are represented here today. Uh, and um, we looked around the room. It was chaired by uh, one of the deputy heads of uh, the city, and there were 30 men and me. Uh, And so he looked around and got so embarrassed that for my sins, I'm now on the uh, City of London Members' Diversity Working Party. Uh, So go to countless meetings. Uh, but, uh, but you can see that that's, that's still, unfortunately, what, what happens, and we have a long, long way to go. Which countries have done the right thing? Um, some countries have done the right thing in some areas, and others have done the right thing in other areas. But, uh, I mean, France is an interesting case in point, because very, one of the best maternity leave sort of regimes, you know, you can take forever, and they encourage you having five children, six, seven, whatever. Uh, Germany too, you know that if you are a seventh child, your godfather is the president of Germany. So it's one of those things. So uh, there's quite a lot of encouragement. You get a lot more money for each child you have, uh, which is all very good news. Um, uh, but, but France is quite interesting on the transparency front uh, because it's now encouraging and pushing for pay so that you know what the person next door to you practically, I mean, that's one of the things that's happening in some places, like in, 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 in Norway, you can find everyone's earnings uh, on Google, because all the tax returns are there, so that's rather good. But in France, they're forcing now even the smaller firms to report the pay gaps, not just the bigger ones, so that's happening over a period of time, and that's all very good. In Denmark, um, they're pushing towards real transparency, so that again, you know, and actually, I have, a, I have one case uh, study from 
Denmark and what the impact is. I mean, the problem is that you can do it in one way and you can make progress somewhere, and then uh, the unintended consequences could be quite uh, extraordinary, and then uh, you may not achieve what you really want to achieve at the end of the day. So, so it would take longer as countries experiment with a number of these things. So I have this case in Denmark where this firm uh, you know, instituted complete uh, transparency in wages and then discovered, and everyone discovered, that the men were getting a much faster increase than the women over a long period of time. So they were just going up like that, and the women were going a bit like that. So a little bit like the BBC, if you see what I mean. So, um, so they had this transparency, and the women sort of revolted. And, and what they did is they, uh, they basically um, stopped the men getting those increases rather than anything. So the unintended consequence of this is that the profits of the firm improved very significantly by just cutting, you know, the, the growth in, in men's wages. Um, that was taking place. Women didn't, uh, didn't benefit from this at all. So in everything that happens, you just have to, to see what the, the, the impact is and have it in line with other policies. So if you just do board quotas and you don't actually worry about everything else, then what, what have you achieved exactly, except you're able to say we, are, we have quotas. And there are, of course, you know, 10 countries, uh, developed countries, which have uh, quotas which are legally enforceable and are expecting those quotas to be met in, in the very near future, but they mean very little. <coughs> so you have to have the right policies, basically, is the answer, based on evidence. Take one. Could you, could we wait for a microphone just so it'll be picked up for the recording. Um, one final question, I think, from the front. Go on. I can hear you. Shout. I give up. It's my fault. I said use it and okay. shout. Isn't that the answer? Just take average male salaries to average female salaries. So that, if you want more, so that if you want more pay as a man, you can't do it without bringing women up with you. Well, that's very interesting. Um, I will say that when I'm asked next. I think that's a, that's a really good, uh, good um, idea. But it depends, of course, which man. And are you doing it on average, median? Are you doing it, uh, you know, uh, whatever skills levels you've got? So, so it can be quite hard to do. Um, but you've got to know what those are, of course, and the woman has to know what those are. And if you haven't got a clue, then again, you're not inclined to ask for, you know, try and get that particular job that perhaps pays that much. So, so there has to be, for that, complete transparency. Um, but as we know, the habit so far has been not to compensate the women for not being paid for ages and ages uh, any decent salary, but, but to just cut uh, the salaries of, of, of men. Although there have been some very successful... You know, the, the law of course, requires you to pay the same for uh, equivalent work. It's not just the same work, but equivalent work. And as you know, there have been some very famous cases, like uh, the one in Birmingham and in Tesco. Uh, Birmingham, where the cleaners were discovered they were being paid, whatever, 12,000, 15,000 pounds a year, uh, and the, the, the rubbish collectors were being paid twice as much, at least. And so they took them to court, and, and Birmingham City Council... Uh, this is probably not completely true, probably got bankrupt more, more or less because they had to supposedly pay back uh, all this money they hadn't been paying for ages to, to them and Tesco with cashiers or people in this and then those who stuck or, or those who worked in warehouses. So, so there are cases like that which, of course, more or less 
suggest what you're saying. You, you've got to look at what it is that the men get and peg them to it, or at least compare them. Because if you've got lots of women doing one thing and lots of men doing one thing, you haven't got the right thing to compare it against. So you've got to be very careful what, how you proceed with this. But it is, it is, it is a good idea. Okay, we're going to have to wind up. One final one for me. Sort of, you mentioned Theresa May briefly. And for 14 of the last 40 years, the United Kingdom, centralized country, powerful executive, had a female head of government, more than many of the other countries that have actually got better records. Does it make any difference? Any, it's really an opinion. It's not something, it's not, she's not mentioned. Mm. Is it, is it, does it matter in, in the terms of the book you're, you've written yes. to have a head of government yes. who is a woman? He does. Well, when I go around schools, one of the very, uh, while she was still Prime Minister, one of the uh, questions I was very often asked was, uh, you talked about role models, uh, is Theresa May a role model? And you answered? <laughs> My answer is, uh, she is a role model in the sense that uh, it shows that you can be Prime Minister, right. but you don't have to do what she does. <laughs> that was my answer. Very good. Okay. First, I'd just like to thank Vicky for not only a wonderful lecture, but also uh, so directly answering so many questions. It's, I think, not exactly a world, nearly a world record for questions here. So lots of short questions, lots of short answers. Very good. So uh, I'm going to ask for a round of applause in a second. I just want to say that as I, the, the books are available outside, should you uh, wish to uh, buy one. And then if you bring it back here, Vicky will uh, sign it for you. Uh, which will make it doubly enjoyable, I hope. Excellent Christmas present. We're nearly there. And apart from the election, of course. Um, <laughs> sorry. And um, for those of you, small number of Vicky's friends who are staying on, gather in the atrium afterwards if you'd like to do that. Everybody else, it'd be lovely to see you too. And finally, one round of applause. A final second round of applause. <laughs>